Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Carbonite Pro, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at CarbonitePro.com. And Firm Manager, an entirely web-based secure practice management application from LexisNexis that lets you take your office with you wherever you go. Check it out at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. And welcome to our October edition of Law Technology Now. We have a great show for you today. I'm so excited. This is the first time, I think, that we've done um, three guests, uh, but they're fabulous guests, and I think you're going to really enjoy the show because we're going to talk about what goes wrong in courtrooms and what can you do about it? Because we all know that both technology and people can crash during trials. And just like a performer on the stage, uh, how they respond and how they act can make the difference in the whole world. Uh, my, my aunt is doing a show uh, right now and had a little bit of problems with her lyrics, and she just turned it into a charming episode that made the whole program go even better. So there's lots of lessons to be learned. First, some housekeeping. We're delighted to have you today. And you can listen to our podcast uh, from three wonderful sites, the ALM site at lawtechnologynow.com, the Legal Talk Network site, legaltalknetwork.com. And because we're so cool, we're on the iTunes podcast library. So I'm going to ask each of our three guests to briefly introduce their, themselves, and then we're going to dive into this fact fascinating story. Look in general as to what can happen when things go wrong, what you can do to prevent it. And then we're going to talk about the Casey Anthony case. And I think you're going to find it a fascinating discussion. Robin, let's start by just having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, um, I'm a freelance technology writer based out of Los Angeles. Um, I've written about technology for close to 15 years. And before then, I was actually a legal assistant at Skadden Arp, Slate, Mar, and Flom. And I've experienced um, technical snafus as a legal assistant, although that was a long time ago. And this story particularly interested me because I love to see what happens, how people respond when things do go wrong. Well, we're delighted that you were able to write the story in, and I know our audience is going to very much enjoy it in the October issue of Law Technology News. Craig Williams is a familiar name to those of you on the Legal Talk Network, but in case there might be one person who's a new lawyer, Craig, go ahead and tell us, if you would, a little bit about yourself. Hi, Monica. Thanks for inviting me to the show. I'm a, a uh, trial lawyer. I've been practiced for 25 years. I'm with the law firm Sedgwick LLP, and... Uh, I'm a board-certified civil trial advocate, which means really not much more than I've just tried a lot of cases. <laughs> and Amy, you're based in Florida. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Amy Singer, and it's great to be here. I'm a trial consultant, and I've been doing trial consulting since oh, 1979. And I've worked on oh, a bunch of cases that you've probably heard about, uh, Jack Vorkian, O.J. Simpson, William Kennedy Smith, Michael Jackson and most recently, the Casey Anthony case. Well, we've got a great crew, as you can see, and I want to start by talking with Craig. Craig, you, you, you and I have 
both been uh, in in the trial world for a while. You far longer than I, because I immediately bolted to to back to journalism. But can you set the stage for us and talk a little bit about some of the lessons you learned early in your career about what happens when technology goes wrong and and what are some of the things that 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 are particular triggers uh, in the courtroom um, that can be problematic? When it comes to technology, I think everything in a courtroom can be problematic from the screen not working to the projector bulb going out to uh, your hard drive crashing and a whole host of other things. Um, so I, Murphy's Law is at its best when you're in the courtroom, especially when you're there with uh, technology and having to perform. And, and as most people that go to court know these days, uh, the courts are becoming much more technology-friendly than they used to be in the past. Uh, gone are the days of overhead projectors, and now we've got Elmo's, and we have videotape players, we have DVRs, uh, we even have computers that are available and monitors that sit uh, in front of the jurors. And there's just a whole host of, of technological issues. And what we tend to do is try to go to the courtroom first. Not try, we actually do go to the courtroom first and line everything up and make sure that everything plugs into everything else and that when you turn it on, it runs. And when it crashes, it can be you can pull up a backup. And we go through the simulation of, of actually crashing a computer and and bringing another one up and, and making sure that we can put what's on the screen, it needs to be on the screen, right in the middle of a trial. Because I have had the unfortunate experiences Robin has learned uh, through talking to me uh, about this article that she's written. Uh, I was in a courtroom for a, a preliminary hearing, a two-week-long preliminary hearing on a, a criminal environmental matter. And we had, I don't even remember how many documents it were, but it was at least... Uh, two or three CDs full of documents, and I had them all on a hard drive. And in the midst of the the uh, preliminary hearing, which was only in front of the judge, thankfully, my hard drive crashed, and it took me almost three days to get a replacement hard drive and get my data loaded back on it and back into the courtroom before I could get up and running again. And had it been a jury trial, I'm sure the judge would have just told me to switch to paper, and and we would have dealt with it that way. We dealt with it that way that day when when the computers crashed, but it was really difficult to print out paper because we didn't have all the boxes of all the paperwork. So it's it's a bit of a challenge, and um, basically you pretty much have to plan for anything and everything going wrong. It, in the article, um, Robin, you had a great uh, quote from Fred Lederer, who is the Chancellor Professor of Law and the Director for the Center for Legal and Court Technology and Legal Skills at the William & Mary Law School. He's a longtime member of our editorial board and quite insightful. And I liked uh, the the reaction. He said that there are three types of, ty of trial technology snafus. One, real or perceived hardware fail. Two, real or perceived software fail. And three, attorney ineptitude. And <laughs> he said uh, hardware failure is the least common um, form, um, but does sometimes happen as, as Craig just told us with fried hard drives and light bulbs, whatever. But he also talked a little bit about what happens when lawyers misuse 
perfectly good and uh, software that is operating perfectly well. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit, Robin, about uh, uh, one of the examples he gave about a PowerPoint on that? Yeah. Um, what I've learned from um, Craig and from other attorneys is that unless you really know what you're doing, PowerPoint may be a no-no because, uh, Craig, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right because I haven't seen the article um, since because it hasn't been published yet, but didn't you say that there was a um, two-and-a-half-hour PowerPoint presentation with something like 146 slides that everyone pretty much fell asleep through? Oh, yeah. That was a opposing counsel who uh, was in an arbitration with me last summer, and he had an ungodly number of PowerPoint slides and stood up and just simply read them for two and a half hours in front of the judge. And I, I can't tell you how boring and uninteresting that presentation was. Because um, it kind of sounded as though um, the attorney had no sense of how this was playing with the jury. I mean, one of the things that seemed really interesting about the Casey Anthony trial is that um, Jim Lucas and Tyler I'm totally Benson. Thank you. Tyler Benson. Um, yeah. That they really made the um, stuff that they did come alive. You know, they had long timelines. They, you know, they made it pop out, for lack of a better way to put it, for the jury um, to understand what was going on. And you're referring, I assume, to the legal graphic works who were doing some of the exhibit support for the defense? Exactly, yeah. Amy, I'd like to turn to you next uh, because it's it's a good example to dive right into the Casey Anthony case. And as I understand, one of the problems that may well have been the core problem of the case had to do with testimony up from um, a vendor, PsyQuest, if I'm pronouncing that right, John Bradley, uh, regarding the results of studies determining whether or not the defendant had searched for the term chloroform 84 times on the internet. You were heading up uh, the team that was monitoring social media and kind of treating social media as a shadow jury, which I'd like you to explain a little bit more about. But how did how did you use social media to counteract what turned out to, from what I understand, be an error on the part of those folks um, in terms of the the results that came out? Tell us a little bit about that and make sense of my mumbling there. <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, it was very interesting. What had happened was when we got the computer printout, we saw that she had been on MySpace 84 times. And then after that, she was, she, she searched one time for, uh, chloroform. And then she did what was called pinging on the site, which means that what she did was she looked at various things and she clicked on the site. And every single time you click, it counts as something but it's not exactly uh, going to the site or, or, or searching for something 84 times. The, eight, the number 84 actually came from the MySpace uh, clicks that she, that she did. In other words, she was on MySpace, and she was, she was searching, and she was looking, and what we were able to show with the demonstrative evidence, and by the way, the social media drove the demonstrative evidence in the case. What we were able to show was that um, we showed the jury the MySpace uh, picture that said, winter over with chloroform, and then we showed them the computer printout, which showed that right after she had looked at that, she went and looked up what chloroform was. That was and the end I, of and it. we should 
I should probably interrupt because I failed to set up the situation in case some of our listeners might not be overly familiar with this. Why chloroform was so crucial in this was that Casey Anthony was accused of murdering her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, by dosing her with chloroform and then suffocating her with, with duct tape. And that was why the question of whether or not she had looked for chloroform was crucial. Am I correctly stating that, Amy? Absolutely. And also with regard to the duct tape, this is very interesting because Judge Perry didn't allow this bit of uh, demonstrative evidence in. However, the jury saw it. What the jury saw was uh, little Kaylee's skull in the field. They saw the duct tape, which was on the ground uh, next to the skull, not over the mouth and nose, and a garbage bag. Then they saw the skull with duct tape over the mouth in the lab. So it was very obvious that somebody had moved the duct tape so that the jawbone would stay together. And once the jury saw that, the entire prosecution's case was gutted. So how, what lessons can be learned from the, the, from what I understand there was, there was the dispute about whether or not this was accurate or not. And do I recall correctly that the, that Bradley ultimately came back and agreed that it was incorrect statement about 84? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what lessons can be learned from that on how do you, you learned, you were able to take advantage of this and help the defense. So in the Casey Anthony case, and granted this was one with a lot of notoriety, it became pretty clear that, that the prosecutor's uh, argument was derailed. Looking back on it, Amy, is there anything in hindsight that the prosecution could have done uh, if you had been advising the prosecution and not the defense, say, to get them back on track after they got derailed in that situation? I think that the only thing that they could have done at that point, and I think that, by the way, this wasn't a surprise. They knew about this. Uh, they were just kind of wanting to sweep it under the rug. If I were their trial consultant, the first thing I would say is don't sweep anything under the rug because the truth always comes out. Uh, the second thing is if they were going to kind of let it slide by and then their expert found, oops, there's a mistake in my calculations, I think that they need to, they needed to bring that up in, in rebuttal and explain it to the jury and explain why that's not so important or uh, explain why it may seem important, but however, you know, here are the reasons why uh, she's guilty and so on and so forth and why there is no reasonable doubt. Um, it was just something that they didn't recover from. Between that and the skull, I don't think they were able to recover from those two mistakes because they, they bet the farm on, on, the, on the chloroform and on the duct tape. And let me say this, when you're going to bet the farm on, on two theories, you better make sure that your theories are right. And at that point, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk some more with Robin Wiseman, Craig Williams, and Amy Singer. But first, a word from our wonderful sponsors, Carbonite Business and Firm Manager from LexisNexis. We'll be right back. You've heard of Firm Manager. You've seen ads for Firm Manager. Now you can try Firm Manager free. For 30 days at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Firm Manager is the web-based matter management application from LexisNexis that lets you run your practice anywhere, anytime, including your desktop, laptop, mobile phone, or iPad. 
Take the free 30-day trial today at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN and spend less time focusing on clerical work and more time on practicing law. Backing up your business files can be a hassle, and it's hard to know if you're doing it right. That's why more law offices are using Carbonite Business Online Backup. With Carbonite Business, your files are backed up automatically and continually. They're stored safely off-site, and each employee can access their backed-up files privately on any computer or on their smartphone or iPad. Try it free at Carbonite.com and get two free months with offer code LTN. That's Carbonite.com, offer code LTN. If you like listening to Law Technology Now, you might also like the podcast, The Kennedy Mile Report on LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. We are back. Well, we, we have a fascinating discussion where our guests today are Robin Wiseman, who is the author of our cover story, Wrong Way, on the October issue of Law Technology Now. Craig Williams, who you all know from his show, Lawyer to Lawyer, uh, and a longtime member of our editorial board for LTN. And Amy Singer, who was involved with the defense on the Casey Anthony case. And Amy, I'm going to keep it with you for a little bit. Tell us how you use social media in the Casey uh, Anthony case to help the defense team adjust and develop their their strategies during the case, especially cases. And you've told us that you've worked on some very high profile cases. When you have that that expression from the '60s, the whole world is watching. How did you use the the social media to be a shadow jury? Well, it was really interesting. What happened was Judge Perry had uh, denied our motion for a supplemental juror questionnaire. So we found ourselves with individual voir dire, which was very long and seemingly very boring for most people. And what happened was the, the people who were, re- were, were making comments about the case and bloggers began to talk about what they were able to observe. And the first thing that we realized was that they liked Casey and Pastel. They liked her with her hair up. Um, they, they made certain comments about Jose. They made certain comments about Dorothy Sims. So what I did was I passed that along, and we made adjustments. And one, they liked her in pastels. Matter of fact, one day she came and dressed all in black, and, and, the, and the crowd went wild. Um, more importantly, uh, once we started to put up the demonstrative evidence in the case, we got immediate feedback on you know, how that drove the case. And basically, the social media comments, the comments that we got through social media networks and through Twitter and Facebook and so on and WESH, what we did with that was we gave it to uh, Jim Lucas and Tyler, and they went to, to Jose, and basically our, the social media drove our demonstrative evidence in the case. In other words, show them what they want to see. What didn't they understand? What did they want to know? You know, the only way you can transfer knowledge is through visual images. Yeah. And Jose, I assume you're referring to Jose Baez, who was the Correct. Uh, yeah. the defense lawyer on the case. How do you screen social media and rule out the crackpots and rule out the the folks who 
have nothing better to do but to sit in their house all day long and watch TV? Excellent question. I learned a lot about social media analytics. There are two things that you look for. One is uh, you do a sentiment analysis, which is you, you analyze their feelings, and that's very important, by the way. And you look at the frequency. You look at the, the modal response. And the other thing that you look at is content. What are people focusing in on? It really didn't matter whether they were nuts or not. It really didn't matter, you know, where they live. They could come from Australia, Florida. What mattered was the frequency with which people commented about certain things. Like there was a tremendous amount of uh, controversy over George. There was a tremendous amount of controversy over her partying, for example. Who's, who's George? Remember, a lot of oh, our I'm audience sorry. didn't, didn't intimately watch yeah. the program. Yeah, well, 40,000 comments later. Um, George Anthony is Casey Anthony's father. Okay. And why was that significant in this? Well, he was a polarizing uh, person in the case. Those individuals who were suspicious of him, who didn't like him, who didn't trust him, uh, felt that they had a reasonable doubt. Um, those individuals who felt sorry for him, uh, the poor George's uh, team, they kind of said, well, you know, I, ha- I, I, I think she's guilty, you know, friar. Now, when you were deciding how to approach social media, you knew who the, the jurors were. You got a sense of the jurors. How did that shape the choices you made in terms of evaluating the social media? And what social media were you using? Well, one of, one of the things that, that we were able to use was there was video streaming of the trial by WESH, which is a Orlando uh, network. And um, to the right side was the video streaming, and to the left were comments. And there were, there were hundreds, millions of comments that were coming through. And the first way that we used social media was like I said in jury selection, what would happen is they would ask a question like, you know, do you have any children? And it was so boring that people started to, to, you know, to, to make comments such as, well, you know, I have children. I wouldn't wait 31 days if my child was missing. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I know who my children are with. You know, who, who's this nanny business? Um, and then somebody floated around the idea that I heard that, you know, Kaylee drowned. And so, we were able to see who would be open to that theory and who would not be open to that theory because they would say certain things like, well, gee, I have a, I have a pool in my backyard, which is very common, for example, in Florida. And, uh, you know, how did those folks feel? So those are the kinds of things that began to drive our, our voir dire, especially grandmas. Cindy became a polarizing issue. Uh, Cindy Anthony was the mother, uh, Casey's mother. In the case, I mean, people were just basically saying, this is what I would do, and this is who I am, and this is how I feel, and it was wonderful. We have just a little bit of time left over, because we could certainly talk about this forever. But before we end, um, I want to ask you, Amy, what was the biggest surprise after this trial when the dust settled? What was the thing that perhaps surprised you about your experience uh, with the case? The death threats. I received death threats. It It was unbelievable. Um, there, there was a lynch mob. There were people that were just so upset and just so angry because they didn't see what the jury saw, and they didn't—they heard what the jury heard, but they didn't see what the jury saw. And so they came up with two very different conclusions. The biggest problem, I think, in the case, and this is where social media kind of works against you, is that people out there who followed the trial, by the way, they tend to be prosecution-prone, people who follow trials obsessively, um, they felt as though they, they saw all the evidence, that they knew everything in the case, and they didn't because the judge didn't let the public see crucial evidence that the jury got to see. 
And so they felt like, how could this jury possibly have come up with this decision, given, given all the information that I know and that I have, and the information that was given to the jury? And so that, that was the biggest, uh, biggest surprise there was, was uh, you know, they were threatening to kill me. I mean, who am I? And Craig, I want to turn it to you and ask sort of a broad question. And again, I wish we had a couple more hours because we could certainly talk about how to control your skids in the courtroom. Do you think that the Casey Anthony case and the other high profile cases recently using social media is going to dramatically change how lawyers either on the prosecution or the defense side approach their cases, whether they be high profile or low? I would say for high profile cases, the answer is obviously a yes. Anytime that you can have millions of people contributing, uh, like we were just talking about in the Casey Anthony case, you can adjust your presentation accordingly as you go along uh, and be able to do what was done in this in the Casey Anthony matter. But in low-profile cases where you have the standard everyday burglary to robbery case or assault case, no, I don't think so. I don't think that enough people are going to pay attention to it um, to be able to draw anything from it. It's, you know, I, I've tried cases and I don't think I've gotten a single tweet or a single email or anything along those lines or anything on Facebook for cases uh, that are pedestrian, everyday kind of cases. But in the certainly in the celebrity, uh, in st- celebrity style cases or cases that become celebrity cases, which happened to, to Casey Anthony, I think definitely. And one final question for all three of you, and I'll start with Robin on this one. What's the takeaway on our starting question of what do you do when things go wrong and how do you control skids? What happens in the courtroom? Should you use humor? Should you be humble? What what advice would you give to, let's say, an, a younger lawyer, a new lawyer who might be a nervous wreck with Maalox bottles trying to go into his or her second or third trial? When the inevitable happens and something screws up, what advice do you give? Robin, I'll start with you. Well, having never um, tried a case, um, I'll just throw out the idea of just being aware and agile. In other words, you have, to, from what I've, from what I learned from the various people I spoke with, you have to be able to, you know, gauge what the judge is feeling, what the jury is feeling, and know how to respond. And I guess the most important thing, I guess, is just not to freak out because that seems just to be just like with pretty much anything that doesn't help you at all. Very good advice. And Amy, how about you? I think that the response you get when there's a glitch is intolerance. And I think anything you can do to diffuse the intolerance is a wonderful thing. And humility certainly helps. And Craig, you get the last word on this? I agree with Amy. You have to be humble. You have to own up to it right away. You've got to identify what the problem is, describe it as accurately as you can, tell the judge and the jury how long it's going to take you to fix the problem, what what steps are going to be necessary so that everyone understands the time frame that's involved. And just, I think, as Robin said, maintain your cool. Uh, there's nothing worse than watching your computer meltdown and then watching the attorney meltdown. Uh, Very good point. Uh, really quickly, each of you, if someone wanted to reach out to you, how do they get a hold of you? Robin? Um, the easiest way to reach me is through um, my website, which is simply robinweissman.com. 
and my name is spelled strangely, so I'll spell it out. It's R-O-B-Y-N-W-E-I-S-M-A-N.com. Amy, for you? It would be my website, um, which is www.trialconsultant.com. And charming and delightful Mr. Craig. Mine's relatively easy. Just go to jcraigwilliams.com, just the letter J, not the word, and you'll be able to find all my contact information. Terrific. Well, this was certainly a topic we could have spent three hours on. I want to thank our wonderful guests, uh, Robin Wiseman, Craig Williams, and Amy Singer, and remind you that you can find Law Technology Now at the ALM site at lawtechnologynow.com, our partner at Legal Talk Network, www.legaltalknetwork.com, and, of course, in the iTunes podcast library. Special thanks to New York, David Jasper, David Snow, and Jill Winward, to Boston, Luann Reed, Mike Hockman, Kate Kenny, and Scott Hess. And remember, there's no crying even in October in baseball or technology. I'm Monica Bay. We'll see you after the World Series. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.